It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether. And Agent ETA. I mean, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Anderson, come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links in the description on the link tree. This week's episode, The Bermuda Triangle. Excellent topic. Very fun. Yes, I love this one. One of my favorites. I've actually enjoyed this one ever since I was a little kid. And, you know, you'd see it on Unsolved Mysteries or whatever it was on the TV and, you know, I, I've always just been fascinated by it in general. It was definitely, it was one of the first mysteries, sort of supernatural things that I heard of when I was a kid was the Bermuda Triangle. But as a child, you're not like, wow, that's scary or wow, that's interesting. It was more like, wow, I want to get lost in the Bermuda yeah. Triangle. Where did they go? Where did they go? I want to go there that's too. so weird, you know. Yeah. Not like, oh my God, these people are all gone forever permanently. You're like, wow, they must have gone to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into it. We're talking about the Bermuda Triangle, which is an area in the Atlantic Ocean. It's a triangle that's formed by drawing a line between three different places, and that would be Bermuda, Puerto Rico, and the tip of Florida or a part of Florida. And that makes sort of this triangle region where... A lot of weird stuff happened. Right. But I read, too, that it's not actually fixed in its boundaries. Some people will argue that it changes depending on, like, different magnetic anomalies, that it's not always the same. And it's not recognized by any governing body. You're not going to find it on maps or anything. Yeah, the Coast Guard, they said, nah. (laughs) (laughs) They said, nope, that is not a thing. It's also called the Devil's Triangle. Yeah, they got a bunch of different names for it, actually. <laughs> but the uh, the area itself is about 400,000 square miles. And to look, to see how big that is, like, I didn't appreciate how large that is until you see it drawn on a map. And it is a large, large area. Quite right. a large area. So I feel like when something disappears, it's really hard to pinpoint and say, well, let's go search in this specific area. Yeah. Well, it depends on the disappearance. In this area, people are probably familiar, but let's go over the basics just in case. That's one of my cryptids, by the way, if anybody can hear that. uh, Apologies. Edit. (laughs) Yeah, edit, right? Uh, But this, what we're talking about, this is a mysterious area where ships and planes and sometimes people on land go missing without a trace. Since the late 1800s, at least 200 ships and airplanes have disappeared, and many more have met disaster in the area. Some of the ships were found again, but were totally deserted. Dun, dun, dun. I didn't see any airplanes that were found, like, flying deserted, just completely empty. But that would be pretty creepy if they found that, right? It really would. It would speak to some of the more supernatural explanations. Yeah, if they if they found an airplane and you know the tower radios them goes 
Breaker, Breaker, you're on the wrong heading, sir, or whatever their lingo is, you know. And, uh, you know, go, Charlie, what's your Charlie? Charlie, you know. And they go, they do a flyby, and they look in the plane, and they say, oh, there's nobody in the plane, you know, and then it would just be empty. Ghost plane, so weird. That would be awesome. I didn't see anything like that, but I only actually looked into a small fraction of the cases because there are so many. And some of these cases are interesting enough to where I think you could do a whole episode on a handful of these. There's that yeah, much to them. Yeah, for sure. I was looking over all the material and I was thinking to myself, this could be a multi-part episode if we wanted it to be. Yeah, for sure. Easily it could be, yeah. I mean, I'm only talking about a handful of the cases and you're only talking about a handful of the cases, but well, why don't we get started? Uh, the first really case that I found was, there's not a whole lot on it, but apparently Christopher Columbus f- sailed through the area, I almost said flew, sailed through the area on his voyage to the New World. And during this voyage, he saw a great flame of fire crash into the sea. Could have been a meteor, I guess. But he didn't say he saw a great flame cross the sky. He said a great flame crash into the sea, suggesting he saw something fall into the water. Not, right. not that see, people will interpret this as, oh, he probably saw something over on the horizon going over the horizon. That's not what he said. He didn't say I saw something going over the horizon. He said he saw something going into the sea. Kind of weird. He also saw a strange light in the distance, whatever that means, and experienced erratic compass readings. Yeah, you hear a lot about that in the Bermuda Triangle, like there's some sort of magnetic anomaly in there. Right. So even if you dismiss the supernatural angle, I think there is enough evidence to suggest that something strange is going on there because there are quite a few stories where people lose the function of their compasses. That is correct. Well, why don't you start us off with one of your stories? Because we don't necessarily have to go in chronological order. There's so many of these. We can't possibly cover all of them. Well, I concentrated on ships, ships going in. And I concentrated mostly on airplanes, so it all works out. And I think I did that because of what was the movie that took place in the Bermuda Triangle? He's given me he's given me blank looks. I don't know. The one where they come back and all their limbs are stuck in the holes. Oh, that's the Philadelphia experiment. Is it? That one was so creepy. That did not take place in the Bermuda Triangle, but it was still very creepy. Yeah. Creepy movie. Okay. Well, I picked the USS Cyclops. Nice. That's a good one. And it was a it's a big one. It's one of the most famous disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. So the ship was owned privately. Um, before it was commissioned for service for World War One in May of 1917. It was a big ship. It was 540 feet long and 60 feet wide, and it came equipped with some nice 50 caliber machine guns. Never, you can never go wrong with some nice 50 caliber machine guns on a ship. Yeah, well, it was during a time of war. They called it a floating coal mine. It wasn't Hmm. actually like a mercenary ship or out to do battle. It was a transport ship. And the main thing that it transported, besides people and doctors going to France, was um, supplies. Supplies for other ships, coal. Hmm. Okay. Uh, And it had a long and successful history of voyages. It's not like this was its maiden voyage when it disappeared It arrived in Brazil with 10,000 tons of coal for English ships, and then it loaded up with 10,000 tons of manganese ore. 
Okay. Now, the thing is about manganese ore is that it is a lot denser than coal. And so some people speculate that the ship was actually overloaded hmm. when it took aboard this much uh, supply. Yeah, but the the problem I have with those sorts of explanations is that we're talking about most of the cases that I looked at, we're talking about very experienced crew or very experienced flight crews that you think this this is not their first rodeo. They're not going to just load stuff on the ship willy-nilly. They would be very familiar with the correct procedures to load a ship because that's just what you do when you when you're doing you would know that stuff. That's very that's basic, right? That's you know like don't put flame and gasoline on the wood on the ship because it'll set the ship on fire level of stuff. You well, know? a survey board did recommend the ship return to the U.S., but that was also because it had a cracked cylinder. Ooh, that's not good. No, it's not good at all. But uh, in Rio, it was cleared for sale. Okay. So whatever happened, they didn't consider it some sort of fatal issue. It wasn't serious enough to where they said it could not sail. Yeah. Well, and just uh, just a heads up for everybody, anytime you're on any sort of mechanical thing, like let's say, for instance, you're flying somewhere on a big jet plane, I can guarantee you that there's something wrong with that jet plane at all, all the time. There's going to be minor things wrong with it. But it's usually stuff like, oh, you know, the seatbelt got stuck on this chair or the air conditioning needs some work or, this you know. This light keeps lighting up. Yeah, this thing's wrong. slightly out of spec. They don't let stuff go if it's like a critical failure. But there are mechanical problems with these things all the time because we're talking about some very complex machines. Yeah, that's that's very true. And again, this was, uh, you know, one of many successful voyages. So like you said, experienced crew. Yeah, and officers, you know, it was called to service. It's not like you had a bunch of civilians on the ship. Right. And that's what I'm saying. These people knew what they were doing. They're not going to just sort of toss about manganese willy-nilly and just sort of put it anywhere. Well, this ship was last seen on March 4th, 1918 in the West Indies. There were 300 passengers and crew. No distress signal was sent there was no response to radio calls. It just disappeared. Now, at first, people were saying, where did it go? Maybe it got sunk by a U-boat. Maybe there were German mines. But the Navy didn't think so. Hmm. The Navy said it was something else. There was a storm some days later on March 10th, and it had really high winds, 30 to 40 knots, which is 35 to 46 mile per hour. And some people speculate, oh, there were rough waves, there were these rogue waves, they were really high, the ship was really long, it broke the ship, it collapsed. Maybe, but no one really knows. What we do know is the captain of the ship was severely disliked by his officers. He had a history of imprisoning members of the crew and was even said to have executed one. Hmm. All right, hold that thought just a second. Our live audience says that they can't hear the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to restart the browser because sometimes that fixes the problem. Uh, I got to move off Discord. It's nothing but constant Are problems. Are you recording? Yeah, I'm recording. So that that part of it should be fine. But let me go ahead and restart this. So we will restart the browser. And then we're going to restart the stage. Got to right click on myself, speak on stage. All right. Now, hopefully, can you guys hear me now? Is that uh, is that better? Did it work? Let me let me see. 
Can you hear me now? The chat is typing. Awesome. They can hear us now. All right. Sorry, everybody. You missed the very beginning of the show, but we just gave some background of the, um, of the, uh, Bermuda triangle and ether just started her first case, but, uh, we got plenty more to go. So don't worry. Lots of, lots of interesting stuff to talk about from here on. And I guess this is a good, now that we have the break, this is a good point to mention. I forgot to mention at the beginning, this topic was actually chosen by our Patreon subscribers. We've got three tiers. We've got the introductory tier, which gets you early access and after hours. And the middle tier gets you bonus episodes. And the top tier lets you vote on upcoming topics. And this one was chosen. It was this one or what was the other one? I forget what the other choice was now. It was, I did it last week. So <laughs> I did the vote last week. So it's hard to remember that stuff. What was it? I don't know. I could look it up. I have my browser right here. And for our Patreon subscribers, this week as our bonus episode, I visited with Agent Egg. We went to Santa Cruz and I visited the Mystery Spot and the Bigfoot Discovery Museum. So if you want to hear more about that, that's available through our bonus content on our Patreon. Right. And we were going to do the um, Curse Lottery. Lottery winners. Yeah. But Agent Ether was so excited to talk about her trip that we did that instead this week. So next week we'll do Curse Lottery winners. And then I also have a uh, little bit extra to do for Charles Witted. I want to record that at some point, maybe tomorrow. It won't be, I doubt it'll be like a full length bonus episode. It'd just be like a little extra bonus episode, you know, but there's some extra stuff I wanted to talk about from that file because it's really interesting. But yeah, what? Let's go. Okay. Well, I just, I just was going to say, I just looked it up. The other choice that they voted that they didn't choose was false flags, which is a really interesting topic that I definitely want to do at some point, but I'll, I'll keep it on the list. We'll do it maybe in the future at some point. Of course they chose the Bermuda Triangle. Who, yeah. I would choose the Bermuda Triangle. No, that's true. I would, I would as well, but false flags is still a really interesting topic. All right. Anyways, so we're talking, let's get back to it. <laughs> so we're talking about, I think, probably one of the most famous cases in the Bermuda Triangle, one of the most famous disappearances which was that of the USS Cyclops, a supply ship that was owned privately and was commissioned to service during World War I. Now, it was captained by Lieutenant Commander George W. Worley. He was a United States Naval Reserveman, but he was born Johann Frederick Wichmann in Germany in 1862. That's a pretty badass wartime name. What was that name again? Johann Frederick Wichmann. Wichmann. Oh, Wichmann. I thought you said something else. That's still not bad. I thought you said something else. All right. But that's the interesting thing. Here you are. Yeah. It's World War I, and you have a German who's changed his name unbeknownst to anybody in America and is now acting as a Naval Reserve officer. Weird. Was he like a double agent or something? Well, that some speculate that that might be the case, you know, that he, he was German. But he'd been living in the U.S. since 1878. Hmm. So he'd been there quite a long time. He had his brothers immigrate over. He had family here. So who knows where his loyalties actually lay? When he first came in here, you know, he changed his name and he opened up a saloon. And then he went on, I couldn't find out how or why, but he went on to become a shipmaster commanding civilian merchant merchant ships, and he ran legal and illegal contraband, including opium. Wow. So this guy was into all sorts of stuff. 
he had a reputation for brutality and not just like cursing. He would run around threatening the crew with a pistol and he would make his rounds on the quarterdeck in his long underwear and a derby hat with like a cane. Wow. A little eccentric. A little eccentric. What a, what a strange guy. He's probably high on opium the whole time. Uh, maybe. I hadn't <laughs> even thought about that. He's, you know, he's just, he's high, high out of his mind on opium for like two days straight. And then he, he comes out of it a little bit, takes some more opium, goes out on deck and he thinks that he's been, you know, he's been out of it for, you know, a couple of weeks. And he says to his crew, why aren't we there yet? Mach schnell, Mach schnell. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> his crew wasn't fond of him at all, and he was disliked immensely by his officers. And there was rumor that there had been a mutiny previously, and that's why he had executed one of the members of his crew. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot going on here. Maybe a, a bad mutiny set the ship aflame, and that's how it disappeared, you know? I don't. You have the huge burden of manganese ore. Yeah. Some people saying it was overloaded. You have the cracked um what was it the cracked cylinder mm -hmm. in the engine yeah you have the talk of mutiny you have storms so you have like a combination of things going on here so what is the mystery besides the fact that they were in the bermuda triangle well there was no sos no sos there were no lifeboats that were found no oil slicks no wreckage nothing has been found to this day Hmm. Not a single trace. Not a single trace. And it got a lot of publicity in the newspapers. It resulted in a Navy investigation. Politicians got involved. And the former president, Woodrow Wilson, said, only God and the sea know what happened to this great ship. That's pretty typical of a lot of these cases. They just disappear without a trace. It remains the largest loss of life not from combat in Navy history. Really? Mm -hmm. Over 300 people. Dang, that's... Okay, so in Navy history. In Navy history. Okay, I say, because I'm pretty sure that there were ships that lost more than that, but maybe not from the Navy. Na yeah, naval history from the Navy. From a single ship, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the USS Cyclops. That's what I could find about it. Very interesting case. All right, why don't I do one? We'll talk about one of probably the most well-known case associated with the Bermuda Triangle, and that's... Flight 19. Do you know about Flight 19, Agent Ether? I just looked at the boats. All right. Flight 19 was a flight of five airplanes, five Grumman TBM Avenger airplanes that were flying for the U.S. Navy on December 5th, 1945. There was a flight leader slash instructor named Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor who had 2,500 hours of flight time and was a World War II veteran of the Pacific Theater. 2,500, that's a lot. That's, I mean, we're talking about a, a really experienced pilot here, right? Right, Navy, Navy officer. Yeah, he's been through war. He's been through everything. He's very experienced. He's the instructor. It was a routine training mission to practice navigation and bombing. The exercise was called Navigation Problem Number 1 aptly named, I suppose. And this was not a one-off. This was something, this was an exercise that they ran all the time. They ran it and then flights later in the day ran it. It was not like a weird anomalous sort of a thing. It was a routine training mission. Right. So the other guy, the other four airplanes were the students and Taylor was the instructor. 
And you might think that uh, Taylor would be flying in front, but actually the students were flying in front because they were taking a test, essentially, and Taylor was sort of grading them, so he was flying behind them so that the students could figure out how to navigate and do that sort of thing, right? Well, the day of the flight, Taylor, Lieutenant Taylor was late, and when he got there, he asked to be taken off the assignment. He told his commanding officer that he was not feeling up to it. When his superior asked him why, he said he just didn't feel right and didn't want to be in the air that day. He was told he had to fly anyways because he was the only instructor there at that time. Ooh, spooky. Pretty weird, right? Because I've heard about this before where people will get freaked out before a plane crash and they'll decide, they'll decline to go on the flight and then they make it and the plane crashes. like Almost like they get a premonition or something. And Lieutenant Taylor... He didn't list a specific condition, like he didn't say I'm sick or my leg's broken or whatever. He just said, I'm just not feeling it, you know? So it sounds a lot like a premonition. Some people speculated that maybe he was hungover, but I mean, I don't know. I'm not really buying that one, and it doesn't match with what I read about his character. He seemed like not the type of guy who would go into work super hungover, especially when you're flying an airplane. Not a great idea, you know? Not a good combination. Not, but it happens, so who knows? But it doesn't, I don't know, there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that. It just seems to be speculation. So anyways, they took off a little bit late at 14.10. Which time is 14.10? 2.10. Oh, you're paying attention that time. All I right. I was. I'm looking <laughs> at you. I'm paying attention. I'm listening to what you have to say. Yeah. So they took off at 2.10 in the afternoon. The weather was good. The visibility was good. Everything was good. It was perfect flying conditions. Their original plan was to fly in a triangle pattern, carry out bombing practice at Chicken Shoals, turn north to fly over Grand Bahama Island, and then return to the base at Fort Lauderdale. Lieutenant Taylor followed the students to grade them, and this was actually their last exercise before they graduated from whatever flight school they were doing. So they go on the mission, they take off, and the bombing practice happens as expected at around 1,500 hours. At 1540, Lieutenant Cox, who was another flight instructor who was there getting ready to fly the same training mission with a different group of students, heard a radio message. Someone asked for a compass heading. Powers, one of the students, said, I think it was Captain Powers, I forgot to notate that. One of the students said, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after the last turn. Lieutenant Cox transmitted, this is FT-74, plane or boat calling powers. Please identify yourself so someone can help you. FT-28, who was Lieutenant Taylor, said, Both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, meaning the, floor, the uh, Florida Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Now, I guess he had two compasses on his airplane, and they were both malfunctioning. Kind of weird. I'm starting to see a pattern here. Yes. It's kind of weird. Lieutenant Cox suggested that Lieutenant Taylor put the sun on his port wing, which would be his left, and fly north to Fort Lauderdale because the keys would be south, right? So find the coast, fly up, and you'll find it. Taylor responded, I know where I am now. Don't come after me. Oh, because Lieutenant Taylor or Lieutenant Cox also offered to fly out and help him to find him and guide him back. But Lieutenant Taylor said, I know where I am. Don't come after me. I can get back. The base 
the base, not just Lieutenant Cox, but the base tried to contact Taylor to help, but received no response. So this is one thing that's sort of typical of a lot of the cases I saw was very spotty radio transmissions, even on clear weather days. Kind of weird, maybe a little anomalous. Maybe the technology was not so good back then. Who knows? So at 1645, which would be 445 in the evening, Lieutenant Taylor radioed, we're heading 030 degrees for 45 minutes, then we will fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. So there appears to be some confusion as to which side of Florida they were on. Now, Florida, not that small. It's a pretty large state. It's big enough to where you shouldn't be confused what side of it you're on, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of strange, kind of weird that they flew off with a flight plan going east from Florida and at some point became so disoriented that they didn't know where they were, which side of Florida they were on. If you look at a map of their flight plan, it's not a crazy flight plan. It's just a straight line basically to the east, a straight line basically to the north, and then a straight line basically to the west, making a triangle to get back to Fort Lauderdale. It's not complicated. So how did they get this lost? I don't know. It's weird. At this point, the base was still not able to pick up the plane's IFF transmitters. That means that's the friend-foe transmitter that it sends a little signal saying, hey, I'm your buddy, don't shoot me down kind of a thing. That's, you know, pretty standard military issue. They were not able to pick up that from the planes, which they should have been able to, they should have been able to find those, but they didn't. Taylor, uh, they asked Lieutenant Taylor to switch the IFF frequency to the search and rescue frequency, but he said, now this is a weird one. He said, I cannot switch frequency. I must keep my planes intact. Intact? What does that mean? He can't switch frequencies. He must keep his planes intact. Huh. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I don't know what that means. Maybe he misunderstood the communication. I don't know. It's, but he says I can't switch frequency. It's, it's really weird. I don't know what that means. At 1656, Taylor was asked to turn on his IFF transmitter again, but did not respond. A few minutes later, he said, change course to 090 degrees for 10 minutes, which is due east. So he decided to go due east for 10 minutes, meaning that he thinks he's in the Gulf of Mexico and he's trying to fly east to find Florida. But he left going east. There's no way he could have gotten into the Gulf. Unless. Unless. Unless what? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> One of the students at this point or around this time said, damn it, if we just head west, we would get home. Damn it. <laughs> or something like that. Frustrated. Yeah. And it's interesting because why if if the student if they were all communicating with each other and some of the students were like hey we just need to go this way why did lieutenant taylor keep insisting that they go east it doesn't make any sense and again we're we're talking about a guy who's extremely experienced very experienced why would he all of a sudden forget how to navigate it doesn't make any sense it's so strange anyways the weather got progressively worse and radio communications got worse at, at uh, 1724, Taylor said, we'll fly 270 degrees west, and that's due west, until landfall or running out of gas, and he requested a weather check from the land weather stations. Now, again, this is very bizarre because now 
he thinks he's on the other side of Florida, no longer in the Gulf of Mexico, because if you're in the Gulf of Mexico, you would fly east to get to Florida. Now he thinks he's off the coast and he needs to fly west to get Maybe to Florida. He just couldn't make up his mind. What the hell's going on here? This is so, but you don't, Florida's, like I said, is a pretty big place. You, it's, we're not talking about like a one mile strip of land here. We're talking about a very large piece of land. And even an amateur would probably find it hard to get this disoriented when flying around the, the Florida peninsula, right? Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's just so weird. Stations where the weather stations or radio stations on the coast were able to triangulate the messages. And at 1750, Flight 19 was somewhere north of the Bahamas and way off the Florida coast. At this point, they were so far off the coast, they were probably too far to make it back to land by the time they ran out of gas because it was getting late and they only got so much fuel on board. At 1804, which would be 604 in the evening, which, sorry, I, they, all the reports are in military time. And you know what? Military time's better anyways. I like it. So, I, you know, but I try to do both because maybe some people don't know it. I don't know. So at 1804, the weather had gotten even worse and it was after sunset. Taylor said, holding 270, we didn't fly with 270 again is uh, west. We didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. Oh, my. What the hell? Taylor's last message was apparently, all planes close up tight, we'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. That's that's kind of eerie. That's the last thing. Well, and that doesn't necessarily mean they were going to die. They could ditch their planes in the water and, you know, they have flotation vests and things in the plane. That's their last message, I meant. Yeah. Oh, that's, it is pretty eerie. Yeah. But they were probably, he was probably thinking, okay, we'll just, we'll, we'll bail out of the planes. We'll use our flotation devices and hopefully somebody will come and rescue us. That's right. Maybe that's sort of the thing. But you're right. That is a really, really eerie kind of a message. And the fact that he says, okay, close up tight, you know, close up formation, get ready to ditch the planes. Like close up formation means like they're, he seems like protective of something as if he senses an outside threat almost is what that kind of suggests. I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to all land together, but it's, yeah, you're right. It is really creepy. Five aircraft and 14 men were lost without a trace. The largest Navy search to by that, I mean, by since it's been surpassed, but at that time, it was the largest search effort the Navy had ever done, and they did not find a trace of anything. During the search, this is where it gets even weirder, a Martin PBM-5 Mariner, which is one of those, like, those airplanes that kind of, they can land on the water. Yes. It's like a boat plane mysteriously exploded maybe the plane disappeared and it was the the mariner was in a square search pattern after dark it was last heard from at, at uh 1930 which is 7 30 in the evening at 21 15 a tanker ship the ss Gaines mills reported seeing a hundred foot tall flames from an explosion the fl- but if if the Mariner was last heard from at, at seven at seven thirty, but then it wasn't until nine fifteen that the tanker saw the the fire, is that even the same thing? I don't know. Maybe there we're assuming that it is, but 
That's a pretty big time gap there, right? It's a pretty big flame. Yeah, and also a really big flame, yeah. So they say that they saw a 100-foot-tall flame from a, an explosion and that the flames burned for 10 minutes. The ship searched for survivors, but they didn't find any. There were also 13 people aboard. You know, lucky number 13. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Where's that suspenseful hamster when I need him, right? Right. Is that copyright? Can I just use that? I need to get that sound effect on my thing. But I, I want, so I want to look at uh, how many people were on, because I think it was 13 people. Um, no, 14 people. Okay, so it was 14, and then 13 people lost searching for the original 14. Two planes lost on the same day in mysterious circumstances. Although there were, oh, in the intervening years, there have been several planes found under the water. None of them were Flight 19. The most prominent was a plane found underwater during the search for the wreckage of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Because you had this researcher, I forget his name, but he he did this thing where he he figured what the probable course was based on the radio transmissions. If they went this way and they thought they were confused, then they went this way and they were confused, so they went back this way, they would have ended up here. And this plane was found underwater and it was it was one it was the same make that the planes from flight 19 it was the uh, um not the challengers what was it the um i'm getting my mix I'm getting my mixed up here the um avengers i think was it avengers let me see i have to scroll up no that up was here. the movie yeah <laughs> it was the yeah it was the movie and i got to i got to scroll up the um i watched the avengers the other day it's pretty good i should the first i should one. I should have just said, screw it. Who cares what the planes are called? Yeah, Avengers. Yeah, the Grumman TBM Avengers. There you go. Mind, mind fart for you there, right? So anyways, where was I? Um, they found an Avenger underwater when they were looking for the Challenger. But the, the plane turned out to be from a completely different crash. <laughs> and this happened at another time. In 1991, a treasure hunter named Graham Hawks found the wreckage of five Avengers but they turned out to be five completely different planes from Flight 19. Apparently, there were Avengers crashing in the Bermuda Triangle all over the damn place in the 40s. Like, all the time, apparently. Maybe they just weren't very good planes. They were supposed to be pretty reliable, but they... I mean, and this isn't all of them. There were some found, like, in the Everglades, they found one. Like, there were many of them found. This is not an isolated thing. There's a, they found a bunch, but none of them turned out to be Flight 19. They never found a single trace of Flight 19 ever again. Not a shred, nothing. And, you know, it has similarities to the one your boat and a lot of the other cases where they lost communication at some point. They had problems with their navigation and their compasses, and then they vanished without a trace. Very strange. You know, I'm pretty skeptical about some of this supernatural stuff, but some of these cases kind of make me wonder a little bit. Well, like, what happened? Was it natural? Was it supernatural? I mean, a magnetic anomaly is not going to cause somebody with this level of experience to be confused as to what side of Florida he's on. Right. You know what side of Florida you're on. You go this way, then you make a left turn. You're not going to end up in the Gulf of Mexico. You know what I mean? It's just, I don't know. It's the strangest thing. So the official cause of Flight 19 was at first they determined that um, Lieutenant Taylor was probably at fault but then his mom called up the Navy and he's like, hey, <laughs> hey, you, you can't blame my son. 
And then they looked at it again and they said, yeah, his equipment was malfunctioning. So then it was determined to be unknown. And that was the official designation of the crash is just unknown. unknown. Which is weird because they did quite the investigation. There's, you can look up the report online, their investigation report. It's available. And they couldn't figure out what happened here. Pretty weird. And it's not like they had dummies investigating this. They did a full-blown investigation and they could not figure it out. Or maybe they did. Maybe they did. (laughs) Yes, and maybe they're hiding it. Yes. (laughs) Now, a lot of researchers over the years have speculated possible flight paths that the Flight 19 could have taken, but we don't know for sure where they were. It's possible that Taylor got disoriented and thought he was over the Gulf of Mexico, when in reality, he was on the other side of Florida. How is it possible for him to make this mistake? I don't know, but... There's different groups of islands that he could have been over. So he, he thought he was over the Keys when in reality he was over a completely different group of islands. And that's how he made his mistake. Who knows? But it's a pretty big mistake. And if you listen to like the radio communications, he flips back and forth of where he thinks he is. And the whole thing is just really, really bizarre. Also, Flight 19 never turned on their ZBX receivers which would have led them towards the radio towers. Why did they do that? Don't know. No idea. So that's, that's that case. That's just kind of a mysterious thing. Nobody knows. It's weird. That's like all the cases that I took a look at. Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody, nobody knows, knows what happened. Yeah. Really weird. No resolution. All right. I got some more airplanes coming up, but why don't you hit us with some more ships, Agent Ether? All right. I got a short one here. It's known as the Witchcraft Yacht. I like this one. Yeah, you know about it? A little bit. All right. Well, it's December 22nd, 1967. You have Mr. Dan Barack, a hotel owner, and his friend, Father Patrick Horgan, a priest. They set sail in a 23-foot unsinkable yacht to take in the holiday lights in Miami. Now, whenever I hear the word unsinkable, I always (laughs) think of the Titanic. I feel like it's just not a good word to yeah. attach to any boat. What 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 comes to mind for me right now is and the minnow would be lost or whatever, you know, <laughs> Gilgan's Island. <laughs> it was a clear, beautiful day that turned into a clear, beautiful night. And they only went a short distance, a mile or so, because they did want to see the lights on the shore. So why would they go too far? Right. They they um made it to buoy seven, which was about a mile from the marina. When they met with some difficulty, they had some sort of collision. And either the rudder was damaged or the propeller system in the collision, but the hole had been preserved. So they called the RCC at about 9 p.m. to let them know they were going to need some help. Specifically, they were going to need a tow. Hmm. Nothing like over the top, not an emergency. Mr. Dan Barak is very calm, very steady when he's making the phone call. 19 minutes later, helps arrived at the destination, but the yacht isn't there. There's no evidence at all. There were no additional phone calls, and he never used the flares that he said he had and he would use to indicate his position. Kind of like a ding-dong ditch. You open the door, and there's nothing there. Now, the ship was equipped with floating cushions, life jackets, and a flotation device that helped keep it above water even if it became flooded with water. 
It's like corking the vessel so it won't sink to the bottom. And they're so successful, these devices, that the Coast Guard actually has to go out and destroy these types of boats because they become a hazard to other boats. So that's why they call it unsinkable. Like, it Mm. doesn't want to sink. Right. So they issued an alert for other boats in the area to take a look. And they searched about 1,200 square miles. Nothing. No witnesses. None of the other boats report seeing anything. So over the next six days, they would go on to search 24,000, I think it's 24,000 square miles, like a huge, massive search. And finally, they said, well, they're presumed missing, but not lost at sea. What does that mean? I don't know, but I found the quote in several places. That's what Hmm. they said. Must be a nautical thing. Maybe. So they gave up the search December 28th and... That's it. It still remains a mystery to this day. A mile off the coast, unsinkable yacht, nothing. And it couldn't have gone that far that fast. Right. And you would think there would be trace wreckage and that it would have been found by now, but there is, there's nothing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on boats, but a lot of boats, you know, a couple I've been on, if you're going 20 miles an hour, you're going pretty fast. Like a lot of these boats, they're not... They're not going like 100 miles an hour out there on the water. You know, it's it's a whole different thing on the water. They travel a lot slower than, let's say, a car on average. Right. So it's, yeah, it's a completely different deal. But that's, yeah, that's, again, once again, we have something that vanishes without a trace. That's so weird. All right, is that all you got for that one, Agent Ether? Yeah, that's that one. All right, well, why don't we switch off here? I got more stuff, so I'll switch to my next one, which is the DC-3 number um whole number or what's the designation i guess serial number i guess i don't know nc16002 this thing a dc dc3 is an older airplane it was flying on december 28 1948 there was a flight planned from san juan puerto rico to miami florida there were 29 passengers aboard and three crew members The crew consisted of Captain Robert Lindquist and co-pilot Ernest Hill and stewardess Mary Burke. They took off at 22.03, which would be what time, Agent Ether? 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, 10.03. There was, again, like as usual, good weather, good visibility. They circled the city for 11 minutes to recharge the batteries on board because they had a couple, they had some like electrical problems the batteries had been discharged and they didn't have radio capability. So they agreed instead of stopping and delaying the flight for hours and hours to fix the problem, the pilot said, well, we can get the radio to work. We can get the batteries charged if we just fly around for a little bit. So they circled the city for 11 minutes to recharge the batteries. They were able to make radio contact and then they were good to go. They got permission and away they went. So it was just a temporary thing once they got the batteries charged up a little bit. So it was not like a critical thing. And like I said, problems, minor problems like this are fairly common when you're talking about very complex machines and companies don't like to delay if they can help it because time is money. The plane refused or the plane, I should say, did not respond to inquiries, but at um, 2323, which would be 1123, Linquist radioed a tip, just a standard radio that he was at an altitude of 8,300 feet. 
Miami also received standard transmissions throughout the flight. So even though he didn't respond to calls, he was still giving the standard call outs during the flight, which is kind of weird. Maybe they were having radio problems. I don't know. At 0413, so 413 in the morning, Linquist reported he was 50 miles from Miami, but Miami didn't hear. Miami Airport did not hear that. New Orleans heard that. New Orleans Airport, not Miami. So he says he's off course, way off course, because New Orleans is 600 miles from Miami. After this, the plane went missing. Neither Miami or New Orleans was able to contact them. If the plane went down, it could have been anywhere in the area from Cuba to the Everglades to New Orleans to the Gulf of Mexico, anywhere in the whole area. On January 4th, 1949, two bodies were found 90 kilometers south of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, but the connection to the flight is dubious. They were never able to connect them. They just sort of said, well, here's a couple of bodies. There's a missing plane, maybe, but there's, it's just not really any evidence that the two are connected at all, but I just sort of would, wanted to throw that out there. So there's no trace whatsoever of the plane. It's never been found. It just disappeared. They radio to Miami and they're heard by New Orleans and then they're just gone. They just wink out of existence, apparently. Really, really weird. But again, we have, we don't have any compasses that I know of that were going haywire, but we have communication problems and then we have this plane just disappearing into nothing. Well, even if Pretty you don't weird. have compass problems, you still have electronics on board the plane. And who knows if there is anomalous magnetic fields, how that could affect those electronics. Well, in 1948, they might not have had the, I don't think they had the same stuff. Everything was analog back then. I don't, I'm not sure that they had electronics like the, like we do nowadays. Um, I mean, they did have electronics. I mean, they had electricity, obviously, but they didn't have, you know, like these satellites beaming down positions and stuff like that. I think everything was done a lot more, um, it was a lot more manually. rudimentary. Yeah. Or manually. Yeah, that's a good term, manually. I think everything was a lot more manual back then. I'd have to ask a historian about that. I'm not, I'm not uh, super up to speed on that stuff, but um, uh, I have I have been to an airplane museum and <laughs> so. I, I have seen the the instruments in the cockpit and they don't look like the current instruments. No, <laughs> no LCD screens, for instance. All right, that's that one. It's a short one. It's weird, and that's all there is to it. Why don't you give us your next one, Agent Ether? All right, I have an older one. It's the Ellen Austin. Okay. In 1854, they built a three-mast, 210-foot-long schooner weighing 1,800 tons. Seems like a fairly good-sized ship. It's a good-sized ship. In 1855, it set sail to Georgia, where it encountered a ship that was in pretty poor shape because of a storm. So the captain aboard, Captain Wood, rescued the crew and brought them with him. So they arrive in Savannah in April 1855, and they take aboard 2.4 million tons of cotton cargo. What? Which is the largest load ever to clear that port. Dang. Yeah, it's a lot of cotton. So it would go on to operate as a cargo passenger and mail ship for the Patriotic Line under Captain William Garrick. And it ran a lot between Liverpool and New York City. Now... (laughs) Again, this particular ship had a reputation for brutality. In fact, the New York Tribune had a whole article 
titled Brutality at Sea, which detailed abuse to the crew by Captain Garrick. Hmm. So according to the article, the captain set two dogs on a crewmate that tore and mutilated his legs, and this was after he had whipped him and hit him in the head. Wow. I don't know what happened with that crewmate, but he was pretty pissed at him. I wonder if it's like uh, Ghostbusters 2, you know, with the painting. Have you seen that one? I don't know. Have I? Where, you know, with, with Vigo, where uh, he's it's sort of the, you know, remember the pink goo? Yes. That it reacts to emotion. So if somebody starts getting really pissed off, it starts like bubbling and getting oh, kind of crazy. Vaguely. I yeah, yeah. think I've seen it once or twice. Yeah, it's not as good as the first one. No. But I wonder if there's something in the Bermuda Triangle that reacts to violence and cruelty. I hadn't I don't have that on my list of possibilities and explanations in the Bermuda Triangle. Yes. That's your own theory. <laughs> yes, I came up with one. <laughs> So there were actually a lot of stories that ran in local papers about this specific captain calling for his arrest, calling for somebody to do something, but nothing happened. He remained captain Hmm. of the ship, of the Ellen Austin. Wow. I mean... Even with that reputation. (laughs) You get away with a lot back then, I guess. So stories continued to run, and I have a quote from one. The ship, it is said, seldom arrives in port without similar charges being made by passengers and crew of violent usage on the part of the officers. Hmm. So this is the ship. This is the captain. This is the crew that goes sailing in 1880 into the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. All right. So they come across an unidentified schooner. It's listless. It's sailing in an erratic path. They observe it for two days in case it's some sort of trap. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're thinking pirates yeah. or just, you know, somebody wants to steal their cargo. And then after two days, they move within hailing distance. So they're calling out, you know, ho there, <laughs> however they would do it. Army mateys. Arr. No, they're not the pirates. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> so ho there and, and nothing. So when there's no reply, he, the captain, takes four men on a rowboat. They have their weapons drawn because they don't know what the situation is over there. They go on board. The vessel is ship-shaped. There's nothing wrong with it. The sails are a little tattered from exposure, but the rigging's intact. There's no sign of violence. There's also no sign of the crew And the ship's log is gone. Hmm. No ship's log. And in addition to that, this is strange. The nameplates were removed from the bow. Weird. So they don't know what ship it is. It's just this ship listlessly sailing about with no crew. Now. In the Bermuda Triangle. Were were they removed or were they not there to begin with? The ship? I mean, like the, the name of the ship. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Because that's sort of interesting if, you know, if there was like a little metal plaque nailed to the side of the ship and you could see where it was missing from, or if it just wasn't there. it wasn't there. Yeah. Well, the ship's hold did contain shipments of very well-packed mahogany. Okay. Well, look, ships are very expensive and mahogany ain't cheap. So how could this be unaccounted for? That's so weird. It gets weirder. Okay. <laughs> so the captain says, well... This mahogany and the ship are worth some money. I think that we should go ahead and take it. Yeah. Score. Score. So he takes control of the vessel. He declares the vessel his. He takes some of his best crewmen over to sail the ship. It's calm waters. They sail close to one another, no problems, until a storm comes in. 
And it's a doozy. It is a violent storm. And during the storm, the ships lose contact from one another. So it's a few days. The storm's cleared. The captain gets a look through his spyglass. And way off in the distance, he spots the ship. Okay. Aimlessly drifting. Oh. Yeah. So they go to intercept. It takes a couple hours to catch up. Again, they hail the ship. No answer. Take a rowboat. Weapons drawn, hail the ship, finally go on board, nothing. Completely empty? Completely empty. And, and the new ship's log is missing. What? (laughs) (laughs) No way. The cargo hold's full, the food rations are there, but the bunks had not been slept in. What? (laughs) Very weird, right? That is so weird. So the captain, you know, the crew's like, hey, this is cursed. We should probably just leave it (laughs) alone. Like, let's leave it alone. Mahogany's not worth that much. But the captain's like, no, no, (laughs) (laughs) this ship is mine. I don't want to abandon it at sea. So crew goes on board. (laughs) Not kidding. So this is the second crew on board. Weather turns again. Dense fog descends. So not a storm, just fog. Uh-huh. Dense fog. You can't see a few feet in front of you. Uh-huh. They lose contact with the ship very quickly. No visibility. Come to a standstill. Like the ship's not going anywhere in that fog. You don't want to risk running aground, running into the other ship. So you're just chilling on a calm sea in the fog. The fog finally lifts and the ship is gone. Huh. So at this point, the captain agrees with the crew that maybe (laughs) it is time to just let sleeping dogs lie. They never heard from either one of the crews. They never found the ship. It's a mystery. Just gone. Just gone. So they sail back to New York in late February of 1881. Their ship is done. It would no longer serve as a packet ship, meaning transporting the cargo back and forth. It would be sold to a German company, and two years later, it would be wrecked along the American coast. Hmm. Wow, that's a weird one. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that should be a movie or something. Maybe it is. Maybe, yeah, maybe it is, yeah. That's so weird. Yeah, I love that one. It's hard to believe that there's a triangle of supernatural stuff, but when you hear stories like that, I don't know, man. Like, what are the chances? That, like something that's, out of Pirates of the Caribbean. That's some crazy stuff right there, man. That is really weird. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of weird, I got some more planes for you. Um, this time we'll talk about Flight 201. On March 31st, 1984, so a little more recent here, a Cessna on way from Fort Lauderdale to Bimini Island in the Bahamas, or was on, uh, a Cessna was on the way. The pilot and crew were all Cessna employees and all experienced with the aircraft. On the way to their destination, something went wrong. The plane slowed down and just sort of fell out of the sky into the water. There was no distress signal, no communications, nothing. It just fell right out of the sky. A woman on Bimini Island claims to have seen a plane fall into the water, but when they looked for it, They didn't find anything. There was no trace whatsoever of the plane or its passengers. Nothing has ever been found. 
And that's it. That's the whole story. That's the story. Lost the story. plane. Another lost plane. Just fell right out of the sky. Just slowed down and just bloop into the water. Gone. Forever. And they looked right where it fell. They'd be like, it should be here. But, but it's no, not there. Not, not there. there. Yeah. And you, the thing is, nowadays, you have so many treasure hunters. Right. So many people with cameras diving down, looking for evidence of these kinds of things. And sometimes they find stuff, but a lot of times they don't. Right. And a lot of these people, I think, while they're looking for other stuff, they wouldn't mind making a name for themselves, finding a famous crash like this one. You could get yourself in the papers, make a name for yourself. Who knows? Maybe there's a movie deal in it for you. You know what I mean? So there is incentive for these people to find these things, and they do look for them, but they don't find them. No. No, they do not. Well, I have one last one. All right. Let's hear it. It's not a ship. Okay. It's a sub. Oh, yeah. Okay. Submarine. The USS Scorpion is a skipjack-class nuclear-powered submarine. It belongs to the Navy. And it was commissioned in 1960, and it would be declared lost in 1968. Okay. So we're talking an experienced crew. And at the time, this was like top brass, you know, sort of spy equipment and just general weaponry like this this was the sub mm-hmm. you know it was expensive <laughs> yeah worked well and well and a nuclear submarine at the time would be like highly sensitive technology that you definitely wouldn't want your enemies to get their hands on so it's specialized in warfare tactics specifically of course nuclear submarine warfare tactics and once she was deployed for special operations and she found she cited a Russian submarine, and I actually have a picture of it through its periscope. And because of this special operation, once it was completed, her commanding officer went on to receive a medal for outstanding leadership. And I wish I knew more about that particular story because it it doesn't sound exciting the way I've told it, but you know that in real life, that was an experience for everyone aboard. Yeah, that that must have been pretty intense. So you have a photo from that actual from that incident. Yes. That's it, really cool. I think it was an actual Soviet missile launch. So it wasn't mm. just a sub. They filmed a launch before Whoa. they had to flee. No way. So, yeah, this was like what was this? 1966. So we're we talking Cold Warish? Oh yeah, definitely Cold, Cold War. Cold Warish. That would be the height of the Cold War. All right. It's always the height. I have a question for you before yeah. we continue. Now, shouldn't, I know ships are usually referred to as she, right? Yeah. Shouldn't submarines be referred to as he? Yeah, yeah, da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. Uh-oh, Uh-oh time for the doggies. Oh, well, we're, we're wrapping it up here, so I think we can wait for that. We'll, okay. we'll do it in a minute. Um, so, in 67, on May 1st of 1967, she was reported to be about 50 miles south of Azores, Six days later, she was reported overdue at Norfolk and was presumed lost. By June 30th, they decided it was a complete loss. Hmm. Like, they just couldn't find it. Now, there was a huge search. I bet there was. (laughs) And they did find sections of the ship. So, at about 10,000 feet deep, they found the ship The superstructure was intact, but it was laying on its side, and parts of it looked like it might have exploded. 
exploded. Exploded. It was broken into two pieces, and the torpedo room was basically missing. So one theory is that it had some sort of problem, like an internal problem, like there was a fire in the torpedo room, or they went to fire off a torpedo and it didn't fire correctly, Hmm. and the ship exploded. Because it looked like an internal explosion, not like it had been shot by a Soviet sub. Mm -hmm. Weird. Right. Um, The running lights were locked in an open position So it looked like it had actually been surface side at the time of the incident, not under the water. All right. So unfortunately, there were 99 people aboard the Scorpion. Um, And it, you know, they did do a big search for it, not just because of the crewmen, but because, like I said, it was very sophisticated, had a lot of gear on there, and had, you know, nuclear torpedoes. You don't want those lying around. Yeah, yeah. You don't want, yeah, you don't want that. Not only do you not want them just chilling, you also, they'd be concerned that, you know, the Soviets would get their hands on those. That would be, you know, pretty top secret stuff, I imagine. So this one, you could say, well, that sounds more like a, you know, something you can explain. Yeah, a And less wreckage weird. was found, a little less weird, but still the fact that it happened in the Bermuda Triangle makes it, you know, in the list of yeah. disappearances, accidents, and Basically, <laughs> weird stuff happening in that area. Weird, unexpected stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of cases that I didn't mention because there are less weird, but there are an awful lot of accidents. You know, they might find the wreckage, but there seem to be an awful lot of accidents in the area where stuff just goes horribly wrong. All right, next, is that all you got for the... Yes. Okay. Do you have next, one more? I got a couple more, but they're all really short. And then we can get to your explanations, maybe. Awesome. I got 15. Yes. Let's do it. All right. So on November 3rd, 1978, Irving Rivers was flying from St. Croix to St. Thomas to pick up passengers for Eastern Caribbean Airways. He was flying alone in a Piper Navajo, which is, you know, not a huge plane. Weather and visibility were good. Along the way, the tower radioed and suggested a course correction to avoid a little bit of rain. The correction was made and... The Piper continued on. Rivers approached the St. Thomas Airport and got clearance to land. The tower saw the Piper's lights in the distance. Another plane departed while Rivers was approaching, distracting the tower. After that plane had departed, Irving Rivers was nowhere to be found. His plane was just gone. It was about a mile away when it disappeared. There was an emergency search and they found nothing vanished without a trace within sight of the airport. Well, that's very similar to the to the witchcraft. Yeah. To the yacht where it's within a mile of land. Like, where did it go? Yeah. And they looked for it. I mean, if it had crashed that close to the air, airport, it would have been found. Like, the airplanes, they don't just fall straight down. They have, like, a, a certain glide ratio. Even if they lose, if they lose power they'll be able to glide a certain distance before they hit ground. And I'm pretty sure this thing would have been able to make it very close to the airport, you know? And it's, it's weird because they didn't see any explosion in the air. They didn't hear any noises, nothing, just gone, right? Okay, so that's that one. I have one more, and then we can get to your explanations. The Great Isaac Lighthouse. Have you heard of this one? This is the one which is on land. 
Yes. And people disappear? Yes, okay. exactly. Oh, you gave away the punchline. <laughs> but it's the Bermuda Triangle. So you, you asked if I'd heard of it. You that's actually guessed. all I've heard of it. You could Well, that's pretty much all there is to it. <laughs> so on the island of Great Isaac K, this is where the, the lighthouse is on the island of Great island, Isaac K, built in 1859, and it's 20 miles north-northeast of the Bimini Islands, which we talked about in a previous example. On August 4th, 1969, the lighthouse was found empty. The two lighthouse keepers had just disappeared. No trace was ever found. And these are probably people, you know, with families and who knows what, just gone. That's it. They're just gone. I think they were actually Soviet spies and they went back to... Yeah, went back to Russia. (laughs) Yeah, they just disappeared without a trace. Now, some people say that a hurricane was in the area at the time, but was it close enough to disappear the two lighthouse keepers? Because the hurricane did not go over the lighthouse. It was just in the area, and it caused bad weather in the area. And the the lighthouse did not get knocked over, right? Right. And assuming it was manned, you would think that at least one person would be on duty at all times, which is the whole point of having two lighthouse keepers. Didn't we see a movie like this? Yeah, it was a different, totally different case. Really bad movie. <laughs> I got. I read the description. I got super excited about it, and then I watched it, and not good. It ended up being like I don't know, smugglers or something murdered some people. Whatever. I don't know. But yeah, that's all there is to it. Just the lighthouse keepers. Now, if I looked into this one a little further, what I would want to do is look into the background of the two people, how old they were, what were their names. They were two guys. Uh, it didn't say. It just said. Two. I'm guessing. It was two guys. And they went Brokeback Mountain? And they went Brokeback. They ran off to Mexico together. Yeah, they eloped. They Could eloped. be. That's my guess. Hey, anything's possible. <laughs> you know, back in that day, you, you probably not a good idea to be uh, to be gay. So, that I mean, that checks out. But who knows? Could be anything. But, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more details to this case that I haven't found. But uh, at this point, you know, I was kind of running out of time to take notes on this stuff. And Well, it's getting to be a good length. Yeah, good length. And it takes a lot of time to dig up all the stuff on this stuff. So I didn't have a chance to dig up all the details in this case. But this one I find very fascinating. And I wonder if there's more information on it. You know, were the logs there? What did the logs say? Because they kept logs at lighthouses, you know. Right. They kept the logs of what happened. What did those logs say? What were... If, if the hurricane somehow swept them off the island, then you would find damage. And it wasn't just the lighthouse. There were also structures, right? So if they were swept off, the furniture would be in disarray. Stuff would be trashed. The buildings would be messed up. The doors would be gone. Stuff like that, right? Right. So what are the details of the case? I'm really fascinated by this one, and I want to look into it further at some point. Will I have time? Probably not. (laughs) But it's still a really good case. All right, and that's all the cases I took notes on. There's a bunch. There's a ton that we didn't even get to. This is a really, really good one. Yeah, and that's what makes the Bermuda Triangle so interesting. I mean, you said there were over 200 disappearances. Yeah, that's what I found on a website. I didn't personally calculate that number myself, so who knows, but... Yeah, I saw a number there were over 50 ships. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. So we're talking, I mean, either way, it's a lot. It's a lot of disappearances. It, It ain't, it's not nothing. But all right, let's get to some of the possible explanations. All right, and this is across the, this is like all possible explanations from the mundane 
to the supernatural. Let's do it. Okay, so first of all, some skeptics say um, it's a heavily trafficked area. I mean, more ships go through there than like anywhere else in the world. So more likely to spear. It's just statistics and probabilities. Not only that, they say, but there isn't a greater percentage of ships disappearing in that area. You just notice it more because there's this whole lore surrounding the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, and that that explanation actually makes a lot of sense to me because this is a major corridor where you do have more traffic than you do in other places. So just think about it. If you have 100 cars on a road every year versus 10,000 cars on a road every year, where do you think you're going to get more traffic accidents, right? Right, like in California... A lot of traffic accidents. Yeah, whereas somewhere in the Midwest where there's a much lower population density, probably not as many, you know. But that doesn't explain the really bizarre disappearances. Yep. Yeah, that's true. So number two on here is that the area is frequented with hurricanes and bad weather, and it's mostly just bad weather. I guess. Yeah, that's a skeptical (laughs) explanation and does not take into account all of the disappearances that happened in calmer in good situations and yeah. clear weather. Yeah. So along those same lines of bad weather, I guess that in this specific area, because of the weather, you can get these rogue waves. Yeah. And they're like three times taller than other waves, like a hundred <laughs> feet tall. And if you have really long ships and they get between two of these waves it just will snap them right in half. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> when I hear that rogue wave, I picture like this this shady wave wearing like a trench coat and a hat <laughs> with a dagger hiding in the shadows just waiting to jump on a ship. <laughs> gotcha, you know. I picture that movie Perfect Storm. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I've never actually seen the movie. I've only seen the trailer for the movie, but they yeah. show that huge wave just coming up over the ship right. that makes you want to watch the movie. But we should I, watch it. I've heard it's really bad. Bad, so I haven't seen it yet. Ah, who cares? Let's watch it anyway. Okay, let's watch it anyway. <laughs> but this one does explain possibly some of the disappearances, but I mean, so rogue waves can happen randomly in perfectly calm weather, but are they tall enough to disappear airplanes? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And make them drop right out of the sky. And some of the cases, like the one you were talking about with the two ships, if there were rogue waves, they would have got both the ships, right? Right, right. It wouldn't have got, you got two ships right next to each other. Well, no, that doesn't make sense at all anyway, because the crew, the ship was fine. It was intact and just the crew's right. missing. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting one and it does make sense for some of the cases probably, but not all well, of the cases. Well, that's the problem with these explanations is that if you apply them to specific cases, you can say, well, yeah, that might explain it there. But when taken as a whole... It's not a good explanation, and and the case that I did with the two ships, uh, the the what was it, the Ellen? That's just spooky stuff right there. That's a real mystery. Yeah. So we also have these agonic lines. So normally, True North and Compass North they don't line up, but along certain areas they do. Hmm. They do line up, and so one explanation is that. Pilots, when they're flying and people on ships don't realize that they're in this pocket of a magnetic anomaly, so they're not navigating the way they think they are. 
in a correct manner. And so this causes them to veer off course, maybe crash into, you know, I don't know, reefs, islands, islands, (laughs) big ships, other ships. Yeah. Oh my God. Where did that island come from? (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) Sorry. Okay. And so one of your favorite was methane gas. Yes. Methane gas. It's true. The ocean is farting and somebody's lighting it on fire. So a big methane deposit bubbling up from the surface, a large pocket being released, suddenly sinking a ship. Oh, I thought you were going to go with setting it on fire. No, I'm just going to go with the sinking. Imagine you're out at night. You're the deckhand on charge just to keep a keep an eye out at night while everybody's asleep. You're out there. You know, you're like, ah, I could go for a cigarette right now. You're like, smells a bit funny. Ah, whatever. And you light up your cigarette and <laughs> boom. Kaboom, boom, the whole ship goes up. <laughs> and then the next one I have, I guess it's the same as the one I mentioned before, which is frequency illusion. They have a fancy name for it, the Batter-Meinhof effect, which is hmm. once you hear about something, you tend to be focused on it, so you notice it more. That is a real effect. I've experienced this myself. You know, for example... When we got our the first new car we ever bought, which was the Honda, the Honda Civic, you remember? Yes, that I was, like that little car. That was our first new car. And it well, it had some problems. It was um surprisingly not good for a Honda, but still, whatever. It was for us, it was luxury. And once I bought that car, I started seeing Hondas everywhere. Like I didn't realize how many Hondas were on the road, but before then I just hadn't noticed them. Another explanation botched mutinies. Again, this wouldn't apply to all of the incidents, but both of the ships um, that I described, it could have been botched mutinies. Hmm. Um, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, if you have a mutiny where part of the crew sides with the captain and then you basically have a fight that breaks out, that could very easily, let's say, set the ship on fire, right? Right. Or somebody could sabotage the ship or something. Who knows? Stuff could go wrong very easily. Very quickly. Yeah. Another explanation would be pirates. Okay. Just, and I don't think for the big ones, just for the fact that you said, well, over 200 ships and planes. So maybe some of the ships have been attacked by pirates. Yeah. Um, Giant sea creatures. How about air pirates? I haven't seen air pirates, but (laughs) I liked the giant sea creature explanation. Okay. For the ships, at least. Yeah. Also for the ships, German mines left over from the war. Yeah. I mean, that could be plausible. And? But, well, the the thing, okay, the thing about that is, though, is that the Navy has, like, underwater microphones, and they can detect underwater explosions, you know? Don't you know? There's a whole U.S. government undersea base over there. Really? under Undersea base? That's one explanation. Oh, it's okay. So it's a conspiracy. <laughs> right, right. Conspiracy, yeah. And the, the government is hell-bent on disappearing mysteriously boats and airplanes in the triangle for some... Maybe they're testing some reasons. kind of weapon or reasons. something. Yeah, reasons. And moving <laughs> on to the more supernatural UFOs. Dun, dun, dun. I was waiting for you to get to that one. UFOs, right? Explains both the ships and the airplanes. The problem I have with that is I didn't see really a whole lot of UFO sightings. Sightings. Yeah, I didn't see anything about sightings. The only one I came across was um, the, the Christopher Columbus sighting. In order to verify that one, you'd have to do a lot of work looking for the sightings and try to correlate them with the disappearances. 
But I didn't see any of that. All right. Bye. Bye, Agent Redacted. Have fun, Agent Redacted. Stay safe. Um, or maybe the whole area is just cursed. That's what, that's reading a lot of these, because I read more than I took notes on. I, I, I wondered, like, what if it's just, you know, a cursed area or just an unlucky area, you know? Like, haven't you had one of those days where it's just not your day <laughs> and you just have a, an improbable string of bad luck? Like, let's say on the Titanic, right? The Titanic had an improbable string of bad luck. That ship should not have sunk when it did. It just had a crazy streak of bad luck. And what if, what if the area is just cursed or unlucky? Or haunted. Haunted. There you go. Is that, is that another one of the ones? Yes. In fact, I made that one up. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good one. Thank you. I mean, if there, so anywhere you go in the world, there's been a lot of warfare probably in that area if there's land there. So why not? Why couldn't there be, you know, some angry dead soldiers or something, or maybe some murdered crewmen, maybe ghosts of murdered crewmen are vengeful. And if a captain is mistreating their crew, then they take revenge. Or alien ghosts. Alien ghosts. Okay. Kind of like on the Tommyknockers. Yes. All right. Yes. I like it. All right. Well, those are possible explanations for the Bermuda Triangle. All right. That was... More than I found, <laughs> but I did see some of those and some of them seem plausible, but they don't explain everything, but it's still fun just to say, you know, what if, what if it is haunted? What if it is, you know, we didn't, you didn't talk about gates to another dimension. Oh, that's true. I did not. That's, that's another one of Disappearing them. Disappearing our ships yeah. and causing them to crash. And when the, the beginning of, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind starts off. With uh, with Flight 19, somewhere, I think it's in like the Sahara Desert or something like that, right? They just, they find the planes there, you know, years, decades after they disappeared, they just find the planes in pristine condition in the middle of the desert, you know, on the other side of the planet. And then at the end of the movie, the pilots are actually delivered home many years later by the aliens. Right, right. So, you know, teleportation, dimensional aliens stuff. I, don't I know. just have to say completely off topic. Yeah. Speaking of the desert, it is supposed to be 131 in Death Valley this weekend. Oh boy. Oh boy. World record. Hey, turns out they might've had something. They might've been right in the eighties when they said something about global warming. Yeah. Something, something. Uh, we, none of us was paying attention. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what it was? Whew. So uh, I know that across much of the world, it's hot. So everybody keep safe. Keep cool. Yeah. And visit your local water park. I don't know. We're going to Action Park soon. Not not by we, I mean me and Agent Redacted. We're going to go to Action Park. It's called Mountain Creek now. And some of the original rides are still there. I'm pretty excited about it. But all right, let's end up the show. I guess uh, we're about any final thoughts, Agent Ether? No, just... Uh, Fun case? Yeah. Really, really fun case? Really fun case. A lot of really mysterious cases that um, I kind of want to look into some of them a little bit more, but it, there's just so many great topics to look into that I don't want to get bogged down in any one topic, you know? I think I'm going to pick the next topic for people to vote on. Okay. You're more than, more than welcome to. I have not put that poll out there yet, so let me know what your choices are. All right. And I'll put it out there. Do you have any ideas? I can't say it's a secret. 
Oh, because you haven't thought of them yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Catch us next time and keep it strange.